0: Welcome to episode 16 of Helmet Theory Podcast. Alright everybody, get ready for a really great episode with author Jim Palmer. We're going to discuss everything from how he left his spot in one of the largest churches in North America to go start his own church, and then eventually had a faith crisis and we're gonna unravel that whole thing and get to hear a little bit more of his story. But first, a couple things I wanna tell you about our friends over at Ready, Set, Podcast. If you've ever been thinking about starting a podcast, the time might be now. Ready, Set, Podcast can do everything from edit, they can help you get equipment, they can help you set up everything just the way that you need because if, if we learned anything from helmet theory, it's that there are a lot of technical pieces That are beyond our knowledge So do better than us And call Ready Set Podcast Email, check out their Instagram The whole thing They also get to produce a lot of other podcasts That we think you'll probably really enjoy So check them out And secondly This is an older podcast episode That we recorded a month or two ago And this is uh, Unlike Ready Set Podcast You're going to notice a few things And I feel like we're always giving disclaimers So forgive us we're going to start getting into the more normal sounding episodes here very soon, um, but be that as it may, it is what it is. So we hope you guys enjoy this. Ladies and gentlemen, Jim Palmer.
1: I grew up in a highly dysfunctional, abusive, traumatic childhood and adolescence, my mother was an alcoholic. My father left our home when I was young. My brother was a drug addict. And, you know, it just is a very difficult childhood. I was loosely Catholic. Loosely meaning that until my mother's alcoholism became bad, we, you know, she and I, my brother, would attend Catholic Mass. But I never had any room. God and so the moment I had my own choice not to go I didn't then when I was a senior in high school the summer after I graduated from high school and uh, I grew up in Blacksburg Virginia it's where Southwest Virginia area Blacksburg Virginia Tech University so okay. on. I grew up in Blacksburg went to Black, Blacksburg High School the kicker on our football team his father was staff with a campus ministry called the Navigators I don't know if you ever heard of them but yeah. um Anyway, to make a long story short, he took an interest in me, and and that meant something that was meaningful, and as the story went, he kind of led me into a personal relationship with Christ. So I went off to college. I was going to play football at East Tennessee State University, but I had a significant lower back injury, and so I could no longer play contact sports, but I went to East Tennessee State University anyway. My first week of school, I ran into a guy in the student center who was Um, the president, the director of the Campus Crusade for Christ ministry. So he invited, you know, it was the first week they were having like a pizza thing. He invited me. And so I went um, and that was sort of my beginning point in my journey through evangelicalism. I got very involved in Campus Crusade. I became like the student leader, student president for a number of years. I traveled overseas with the organization for their like summer projects and so on. And it was, and the the real draw was that, you know, um, part of the draw was that I found a sense of identity. You know, it it was through Campus Crusade for Christ I discovered things like, okay, walk in front of people. I could lead people. I could organize things. I was a leader and a communicator. And you know how it works that in, you know, in in Christian circles, that'll take you a long way. So I became um, very involved in the Campus Crusade for Christ ministry. I almost went on staff with Campus Crusade. But my senior year in college, a gentleman moved into town, and he was starting an evangelical free church. I would listen to Chuck Swindoll on the radios in the evenings, and he would run an ad, hey, I'm going to start this church. If you're interested, come to this hotel and learn more about it. So I was interested. I went, and I became heavily involved in this church planting venture. And the pastor of this church um, then kind of was sort of started grooming me for professional Christian pastoral ministry. He recommended that I go to seminary. So I went to Trinity Divinity School in Chicago. And that's where I got my MDiv. And while I'm at, uh, when I was in Chicago at Trinity, there was a, uh, posted on the board in the student center, a church named Willow Creek was hiring.
2: Okay.
1: And, you know, I didn't know Jack about Willow Creek. I remember I went for the interview i and around, going. Where the hell is this place? I can't find it. You know, when I <laughs> yeah. church Willow Creek is, they look at me like I was nuts. They just said it's that thing, which was like a whole campus. It was massive. Yeah. I thought it was a corporate business park, but no, it was Willow Creek. So,
0: and that that was kind of before mega churches had become what they are. Too, it wasn't quite as there were big churches, but there was like two main megachurch willow creek and saddleback
1: yeah yeah in the, back in the day willow creek was the largest church in north america and you know it was on the cover of time magazine and all this kind of stuff you know because of their secret oriented using the arts and you know, just, um more contemporary approach to ministry and so on and you know doing you know secular music or whatever stuff like this um so anyway I joined their pastoral staff team I was a pastor to single adults at the church and I did that for a few years and um you know and there were there were like over 200 people on staff at the church when I was there I don't know how many people are now you know of course Hydebulls was the senior pastor this is where Don Cousins was executive pastor and I worked a whole lot more with Don than I did with Bill Although, you know, the, uh, all the pastoral staff uh, worked some with building different things. So then Willow Creek started thinking about the idea of planting other churches like that in other parts of the country. So I and, a, and, a, and another small group of guys decided that we were going to disperse throughout the country and start planting. I went to Nashville to do it. I planted Springbrook Community Church. Uh, which was a Willow Creekish, you know, kind of church. And um, it was, you know, it was on the front page of the Tennessean, but only because it was still, the story was, you know, these Northerners are coming down to the South trying to, like, you know, um, bring their crazy church ideas. And on a slow news day, um, and so I was pastor of that church. You know, the church grew. Um, It was novel in Nashville, which is a very traditional, you know, Baptist town, Um, and but I went through a faith crisis, and the uh, at the at the center of the faith crisis was one day realizing that despite my good, upstanding, bulletproof evangelical theology that a lot of the problems among the people inside of our church persisted, you know, uh, chronic unhappiness and disharmony in people's lives and so on, you know, like that, it seemed like it never changed all that much. And then one day I realized, well, and also that seemed to be a pretty good descriptor of myself, you know, mm-hmm. that uh, myself, okay. you know, recognized that there was a lack of happiness and the sort of, Chronic disharmony in myself. And so that was kind of the beginning of my question. What, you you know, what was happening, what was going on? Um, Like, why was this exactly? And so... There was a situation where the wife of our lead worship leader called me one day and said hey do you mind if we meet for coffee i want to chat about you chat with you about something i met her for coffee um and while we were meeting she like you know lit up the sleeve on her shirt her arm was um filled with bruises she slid up the dress on her leg there were bruises all up and down her leg and our worship the, our lead worship leader, her husband Peter, and uh, and that was sort of like okay. Um, that, in some ways, that was the final straw where I became convinced that I I needed to step away from ministry and try to figure this out. It just wasn't adding up. It wasn't adding up inside of me. It didn't seem to be adding up in people's lives. You know, um, I was starting to spot some things in my theology that I could no longer, I was losing faith in it. So I left um, my professional ministerial career. And that's really when I started writing. You know, Divine Nobodies was the first book that I wrote after leaving ministry. I tinkered around with some other forms of ministry, like, the emergent church kind of stuff. Um, You know, I'm friends with Brian McLaren, and, you know, he and a couple of my books and other people in the emergent movement, you you know, and I don't know how much you guys got in all that, but...
2: um, Yeah, we got into it pretty well.
1: Yeah. I don't know if you know Spencer Burke. I would go do his solo ride. Do you know Spencer? Spencer Burke. He, um, you you may not know him. I mean, he... uh, he wrote a couple really good books, but he was, you probably know Tony Jones. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, I know, the you theme. know,
2: I, I don't know them personally, but yeah.
1: Gadget, you know, they were kind of the, the, uh,
0: the, the pioneers.
1: Yeah. Um, so I started writing books. I made a, a significant career change, which at first involved directing a nonprofit organization in Nashville that works with um, at-risk kids who who are abandoned or abused in, uh, in in our city. And there's a nonprofit organization. I became director of that organization and did that for a period of time. And then one of our the United Way of Middle Tennessee, which was a, a significant financial contributor to our nonprofit organization, I met with the per with the, who had left to become the chief financial officer of a human rights agency called the International Justice Mission. I don't know if you've ever heard of them. Gary Haugen, you know, is a Christian and he he uh um he was the lead investigator of the Rwanda uh, genocide, and then he went on to the international so, so I traveled with the International Justice Mission with one of their criminal investigators exploring the areas of forced child prostitution and child slave labor around the world. And um, we would pose as customers in brothels or in child slave labor camp in, in, in order to identify the like in the brothels the ones who were trafficking the youngest girls and so on then I would come back to the U.S. and speak on the subject you know in churches and universities and this kind of thing and so that was kind of that also had a big impact on my theology my involvement uh kind of my firsthand experience of Confronting human rights abuses like forced child prostitution and child slavery. posing as a customer man going into brothels um, under the guise of being Westerners who were participating in sex tourism. And, um, you know, there'd be, you could land in, Mumbai for example which is what we did and and for the equivalent of about 20 US dollars a pimp will take you on a tour of all the brothels and then you go to the one that you have an interest in and then you know you're in this lounge with other men the lights dim and the young girls come out on the catwalk and then the men identify the girl that they basically are going to take in a a room to rape so some of these are you know 12, 13, 14, 15 year old girls who provide sex to customers five to six times a day, six days a week. And it, same thing, uh, you, you know, we, Bob was a professional criminal investigator and I went with him and it was perfect because I was going posing as the first time or so being nervous, a little anxious or whatever was perfect, you know, because it's because the idea was this is my first time, and yeah. because we were Americans, the what what we were doing is um, brothels like this will always use the oldest girls first because they they have um, they're about at the end of their usefulness to the brothel. Now they're older, and um, a lot of men that do sex tourism want girls. You know, once you get to be like 17, 18, you're almost too old now, but they will try to see if they can, you know, uh, they'll bring out the older girls first. But the idea was to keep on telling the brothel owner, we know we, we want younger girls than this. And you had to really be persistent before they would take you to a brothel. that really had the youngest girls because it was the most riskiest thing to do. But because we were Americans, they knew that we would have the money to actually pay for the younger girls. And then that would allow us to sort of document on the grid which brothels actually trafficked the youngest girls. And then later, that would be information for the IJM to deploy a team to do a brothel raid and all this kind of stuff. Same thing with child's labor camp. We posed this in Western investors in a, in a slave labor camp where little boys are basically chained to a pole and have a quota of rolling a certain number of cigarettes. And they put little matchboxes under their chin. Um, and if the matchbox comes out, they usually get beaten with electrical cords because the idea is that they become distracted stop their work, which is why the matchbox fell out. Otherwise they should keep their head down rolling the cigarettes to make their quota so um so that really had a deep impact i mean it was i don't even know you know that that caused me to question a lot of things about god mm-hmm. uh, or at For least sure about
2: western about western christianity
1: yes yeah um so meanwhile, people are contacting me about the books. They're like, you know, okay, religion has damaged me. What do I do? Um, and I started doing individual work with people who were damaged through their involvement in religion. Um, and I still do that to this day. You know, I've partnered with other people um that, that do this sort of thing. Uh Religious trauma syndrome or RTS is now sort of the mental health um, identifier for people that have been uniquely damaged through their involvement in religion and I created an online religion and then I do individual work with people related to you know uh, rooting out toxic religious indoctrination um, repairing your relationship with yourself, which is often kind of stolen uh, or th- or uh, through people's involvement in religion and so on. Um, and perhaps m- most importantly, you know, then helping people really cultivate a life after religion. Because, you know, one of the things that I notice is people when people feel, when people are betrayed and damaged through in their involvement in religion, they rightly feel anger, you know, betrayal, resentment, bitterness. I mean, those are all natural, normal feelings to have in the process. But sometimes people get stuck there and never go beyond that. And so, but you have to get past that. Yeah. To, to, uh, to really build a life after religion. You know, like in other words, some people, religion becomes the reference point. All that's happened in a lot of cases is that the reference point for people was first that I'm for religion. You know, I'm a Christian. I believe in God. I'm a practitioner of my religious tradition. And then they switch sides. And now... They're anti-religion. You know, they no longer hold that belief. They they uh, are toward religion and so on. And but the reference point is still religion. It's just that you chose a different side, you know, you were for it, now you're against it, but the reference point is the same. You so you spend half your life, you know, kind of enmeshed in in following religion. And then you spend the second half, you know, being vehemently against it. And so, I mean, look, if you're someone who feels like, uh, I mean, there are people who feel like that their contribution is to expose the abuses of toxic religion. And so I, you know, like, um, Hitchens is a perfect example. I mean, this was Chris Hitchens. It was his calling, so to speak, to do this, you know. Uh, And so if that's kind of central to the contribution you want to make in the world, then I could get that. But a lot of times people just get stuck and they never get past that, you know, it's not that they're necessarily calling to be like, the a combatant against religion on the kind of the intellectual uh, level of, of talking through ideas. It's more like personal bitterness and resentment.
0: Yeah. So let's, let's talk about that a little bit. Um, Cause I know that's a big part of your story is like you talked about being a pastor, being fully and heavily immersed in the evangelical mainstream Christian way of doing things. I know a part of it probably had to do with the things you were seeing and experiencing that weren't uh, pleasant or that you found question with, but what was it, you know, a big part of, uh, at least my experience and, and Nichols experience, a big part of Christianity for us has been centered around believing the right things and kind of falling into line within your denominational framework. So how, how for you, what were those things initially that just sort of got you thinking about the Bible in different ways? I, I remember reading uh, the Wide Open Spaces book, and I mean, it was first or second chapter. You were going into it a little bit, but you kind of discussed, you started to have experiences, and you started feeling overwhelming love for people, and then it was like, it started to lead to questions about, just that whole process. So I I know that's a big question. I'm going to let you take it and do what you want with it.
1: (laughs) One of the things that, um, one feature of religion, one characteristic of religion is that it, it asks people to accept um, a belief on faith. And, that, that alone is a bit problematic because um, what would it look like if we required any truth to prove or verify itself to us on the basis of things like critical thinking, direct experience, and earnest self-reflection? Uh, Like, for example, even in Buddhas, the Buddha had these four noble truths, but the Buddha never purported to have received these through some kind of divine revelation or he never claimed that he had some special guru spiritual status that enabled him to attain his, his, you know, these insights that he had. And he even told people, you know, do not believe anything I ever tell you because I said it if you have, you need to verify it for yourself. If it, if you seek to verify it for yourself and you find it doesn't line up, then don't follow it and forget you ever heard about it and go on with your life, you know? So like, there's so many things about Christian theology that are, that defy critical thinking, direct experience, and earnest self-reflection. So a lot of the Christianity that I learned revolved around this notion of separation from God, you know, uh, like that's the whole big problem, right? You know, God, uh, there's God and, and, and for all intensive, for all practical purposes, God is sort of a, this Gandalf supreme being in the sky And we are created human beings, and we have a sinful condition, and this separates us from God. And as it stands, if nothing is done, then we deserve only to be punished with eternal conscious torment. But God, our sinful condition required God to um, have his only son Shed his blood and and be killed as an expression of his love and a way to to save human beings from their sin. And the more I start thinking about that, for example, like, okay, like that seems really pathological. Yeah. But think about it. You know, like I I'm God. I created human beings. I put them in a predicament, this, this uh, idea of the, the sinful condition by which the only solution is for me to brutally murder my only son. Um, of course, there was later that I realized for myself that this, is, this was what I learned the Bible meant like this was the interpretation I was given, but there's many different interpretations that the Bible person can have.
2: Yeah,
1: I mean, rather than that interpretation, you know, like, um, so, I mean, I recently had a discussion with someone, question, the question was put to me, Jim, do you think the Bible is brilliant? Or um, is it brilliant or bullshit? And, man, you could easily make a case. It's absolutely brilliant. But you would have to understand it from the lens of the philosophy of religion, not through your fundamentalist conservative Baptist theology. Um, And look, it's, it's absolutely absurd. It's not possible to be separate from God. It's, it, it, it's an impossibility for that to be true. Even the Bible says that we all have, you know, we, we live and move and have our being in God. God is the ground of all being. If it was possible for something to be separate from God, if it was possible for something to self-exist outside of God, that thing would be God. It's not possible for anything to have a self generating existence outside of God. So the whole premise that we're separated from God and therefore Jesus needed to be killed in order to bridge that chasm or gap or whatever, you know, like in my view, is a, is a complete misunderstanding of what the, what the reality of the situation is.
2: So so with that thought, so we've had a few guests on lately that have totally blown our minds. And just as you are doing now, um, we, are, we have not arrived on our journey and we don't claim to have. Um, but something that I'm curious to see what your thoughts are along the same lines of what you're talking about now are, so, so it could be interpreted that Jesus was killed so that or because of he was trying to get everybody to see that, hey, you are like me. Like you have just as much of God in you like, for example, Richard Rohr and the universal Christ, meaning everything has Christ in it, you know, all right. of that kind of stuff, Um uh, That has completely, those thoughts, I'm still trying to wrap my head around, but it's so beautiful to me. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that?
1: I think that one of the biggest mistakes that Christianity's religion made was to pin it all on Jesus, the person, versus Jesus, the message. Okay. Okay. It, it wasn't, and in my mind, basically, you you could think about the passage where you know Jesus goes to his disciples and says, "Okay, you know my uh, my death is imminent, and I'm going to be gone."
0: Yeah.
1: And draw Well, what are we going to do when you're gone? And the point is that Jesus makes is it. This it's actually better for you that I go away, because if I don't go away, what you're going to do, which is kind of what you're doing right now, is just going to get worse. Is you're going to think this is about me, Jesus, the person. It, and it's not. It's, it's about because when Jesus asked people to have faith in Him, it was only a temporary expedient because people had been so beaten down by religion that they couldn't believe in themselves they couldn't believe that so jesus would say look am i not like i'm the guy right you saw me as a little kid growing up in the village i'm this jesus that everybody knows at least have faith in me that i am living a life of wisdom love compassion um connection with god oneness with god you know, like at least acknowledge that you see this in me. But it was a temporary uh, expedient. And when it came time for Jesus to go, people were upset. In my mind, Jesus was saying, well, you know, this is the milestone. I need to leave so that you will not make this about me and you will make it about the life that is in me, which is also in you. But the church made it all about Jesus, the person anyway.
2: (laughs) That that simplifies it enough for me to really walk that out if that makes sense like okay the the message that jesus was trying to say is the life that's in him the god that's in him is in me as well not saying that i'm the messiah but saying that i have the same thing in me and that i can now be myself be who i was created to be be blah blah blah. like does that make sense
1: Yeah, because I think what the point is is that the religious establishment made the sacred, God, the holy, so distant from the people to to be something out of their reach or something that had to be earned or something they could never attain. And Jesus comes along and says, "Well, okay, guess what? Um, I'm both God and human without any contradiction." Jesus, in my mind, wasn't claiming. Some exclusive status as the only God man that ever lived. Jesus was simply trying to point out that um, this is true of every every human being. If you take the Book of Genesis at its word, is a manifestation of the nature and essence of God. Right, we're made in the image of God. God is the ground of our being. Basically one definition of spirituality is the trans is the translation of the transcendent into the imminent. you are a manifestation of the nature of God or ultimate reality that is the ground of your being and everything that and the 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 opportunity then is to translate that into your human lived experience that's what jesus did he even says in luke that jesus jesus didn't know the jesus had to grow into it himself right in luke in the book of luke you know he grew in stature with god and men you know like in other words jesus had to go through a process of understanding his identity transcendently and then how it was to work out in his imminent life in the world which he referred to as the relationships, you know, his relationship with men. Um, but you mentioned this idea of, like, the to me the simple answer is, why did Jesus die on the cross? The simple answer is, is that Jesus was a threat to the religious and political power structures of his day, and they conspired to have him killed, and consequently. Um, it, it was a useful milestone for the growth of, of the movement that Jesus had hoped to, to, to bring, which was for people to recognize that the life of God was within them that could be accessed and lived in, you know, in their human experience. It wasn't like Jesus said this all the time, right? Where's the kingdom of God? It is within you. Um, Jesus, if you just show us God, we'll be happy. You're looking at God. And people confuse that, again, with Jesus saying it was me. Like, whereas I understand that uh, Jesus to have been saying that um, it's not that different from the Buddha when the Buddha said, if you meet the Buddha on the street, kill him. And the 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 idea behind that quote is, if you're walking down the street and somebody says I'm the Buddha, well, it's not true. The Buddha's never been a person. I mean, the Buddha is a title that was given, but it wasn't like a name, and it's not a person. A Buddha, the Buddha is a uh, is the fundamental essence of all people. It's not that different from Richard War's idea of the universal Christ. You know right. that. And Christianity just did not flesh that out very well, you know, that that if, if the ground of your being is God and which God is a word that we use to describe ultimate reality. This is what's so absurd sometimes about religion is the very first thing religious people will say is that God is infinite. God cannot comp- be comprehended, God is beyond our understanding, God is timeless, God is eternal, God is all this stuff. There's no way we could ever know God. Okay, now let me tell you exactly what God is.
0: That's always been my struggle, man. I, I remember going uh, going through like seminary courses and stuff, and we would talk about the doctrines of the Trinity and these things. And we would take these really, what felt like to me were really abstract, ambiguous ideas And we'd mesh them together and say, no, it makes perfect sense. And then I, you know, in, in the moment I'm going, Oh yeah, God is man and God and Jesus is both. And the Holy spirit's out there somewhere. Uh, you know, and then, and then I'd get back to my, my dorm room or driving down the road or something and I'd be going, I know how to express this intellectually but I don't understand it to save my life. And, and it wasn't just the Trinity. It was, it was all these different things. And then I had friends outside of the faith or from different other denominations or whatever. And they'd ask me questions about God or Jesus or this doctrine or this theology. And all of a sudden their questions, it's not that I thought their questions made them right and me wrong or vice versa. It just made me go, yeah. Wait, I don't understand this thing that I can fully explain. I've preached sermons that I have no clue what I was talking about. (laughs) Well, I I, will
2: just go further with that. Like, I've never been quite able to explain things. So, so when you're in the bubble, when you're in the group, everybody resoundingly says the same things, right? But when you go to explain those things to somebody who is not involved in that bubble, you sound like some woo-woo freaky deaky, super Christian-y, like on another planet
0: type of person. Well, you kind of sound like the same guy who is reading Homer's The Odyssey, you know? I'm not saying, I'm not saying what's true and what's not true, but I'm just for a second, can we just all admit? That the stories in the Bible are a little crazy, <laughs> you know. Especially, I mean, especially if you take them literally.
1: Or, or consider the possibility that it could be that, or it could be that um, the writers never intended the stories to be taken literally. Like, right? Like, like the writers thinking these people actually think there was an Adam and Eve in a garden somewhere these people actually think there was a flood and Noah built a boat and that saved simply you know you know like is it that the writers came up with all this crazy bs or is it that we are have projected our own absurd thoughts into like what we insist on what the bible means you know um and it, it, a lot of the tradition that you, you know were raised in on whether or not you believe certain things about the Bible in terms of being literal and so on. This is That's why I think that the Bible, the brilliance of it would be to understand it apart from maybe that literalism that we insist upon putting on it as, as evan, evangelicals because it's an interesting, what's fascinating about the Bible is that it seems like it's telling a story about humankind's relationship with ultimate reality, which involves a lot of stuff, which includes, like, God never told people to go smash babies into rocks, and God never, like, sent people into wars and stuff like this. But part of the story of our relationship to ultimate reality includes insisting that it uh, on it being a supreme you know like like taking it as a supreme being and then rationalizing all kinds of things in the name of that thing you know we still do it today right we go to war and so on because you know we're because of our belief in God and so on So sometimes the story of our relationship to ultimate reality is it's really ugly. We screw it up. It's totally a mess. But sometimes it's absolutely beautiful. It's all of that. So what's interesting in the Bible is that the Bible opens where God is like, he creates everything He's the initiator, he's the catalyst, he's running the show, he's telling everybody what to do, he's giving the rules, and so on. And then what's interesting is about the time of Abraham, humans start to take on a little bit more authority, and God starts to kind of recede into the background, and that just happens more and more and more, until basically you hardly hear about God anymore at all, because now Jesus has become the um has basically become the focal point and then later the church so it's like a definite transition from um god rescinding his himself in the story and elevating the human being to take their rightful authority and, and place in the world and think about this for a minute it's really fascinating that when when um so there's that story where, um, so God is asked, well, what do we tell people your name is? Like, how do we introduce you to people? Remember, God says, tell them I am. I am that I am. Okay. Then Jesus comes along later, and, um, there, you know, all of Christianity hinges on this one thing Jesus says. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I, You know, no one comes to the Father except by me. But what I think people miss is that I am is a statement of fundamental being. Like, God, what should we tell people your name? There's nothing to say about me and my name. The only thing you can tell people is that I am. That's it. Till now, And then Jesus says, i am the way i am the life i am the truth truth is not a concept truth is not theology truth is not a book um truth is not an object you hold in your hand it's not an idea that you think about in your head truth is something that exists on the level of being jesus said i am the truth it's it's who you are in your being is what the truth is it's not an idea in your head or a proposition or theology or an explanation it 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 exists on the level of being um
0: so jim how do you how do you explain this I, i always say this to our guests we have kind of a mixed audience of people that are still heavily immersed in the evangelical church and then people who are whatever else gentiles (laughs) but uh what you're talking about this sense of being and truth truth is is kind of is that can you elaborate on that just a little bit more like because what i hear people saying in response to that is well what are you saying jim is truth relative or what if his truth contradicts my truth and what if his being and the essence of his being contradicts mine and so forth and so on how how do you respond and explain that on evangelical ears or even even to
2: add to that recently we've heard several guests talk about truth in the way of like when jesus said i am he also meant that you are like we are
1: yeah and i would say that i would say that's true because the the I am is significant, is a significant, this is why I think that the Bible, one reason why the, the Bible might be brilliant is that that I am statement, the way that it pops up, beginning all the way back when somebody asked, you know, what should we call people, what, what should we call you God and other people, um, that when Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except by me, Jesus Was not saying no one comes to the father except by like me, Jesus, the person, me, Jesus, the personality, me, the Jesus of Nazareth that you're seeing right now. Um, No one comes to, I am the truth. There is no other truth. There is no other being. You You will never find another way to connect with ultimate reality. It's impossible. Um, No one comes to the father. It's not possible for anybody to know and experience ultimate reality, except by what I'm saying to you right now about it existing on the level of being. So to answer your question about, is it all relative? Well, no. Can God be, okay, if you're an evangelical, you believe, I think that, that God is beginningless, God is timeless, God is endless. Um, God is infinite, and that anything that exists is is a uh, is is rising up within, or is it a, is a manifestation of that one nature, which evangelical Christians call God. There's only there, there's one. I mean, because look, if God is infinite there can't be anything else, right? Like, if God was like only half infinite, maybe there could be some other thing, but there's not. To a Christian, God is infinite. He has no beginning. God has no end, you know. Um, And we are said to be a manifestation of this essence being nature of God. It's, It's fundamentally what we are, not who we are, what we are and that that's not relative at all it's the same you know like it doesn't matter what whatever other differences there might be between human beings the fact is is that we all are a manifestation of one ground of being one nature one essence which is the fundamental is the true nature of all reality, including the true nature of yourself. Part of the problem is that the way the world appears isn't the way the world actually is, which we now know on all many different kinds of levels. I mean, it kind of appears that there's a me here and there's a you there, and I stop at the end of my body and you start at the beginning of your body. And there's a bunch of space in the middle and there's like seven billion different things we call human beings in the world, but we know that that's not true. We know from um, quantum mechanics, quantum field theory, that, that that's not true, that we're not separate objects in some kind of space, but that um, we are, there is a connectivity to to every living thing. It's not separate. It's one thing. Now, if you... Sometime... Study or take a look at Spinoza... Baruch Spinoza's views of God. He was a Dutch philosopher. And in in philosophy, there's something called monism. And monism in philosophy is the idea that there's... There's one substance out of which... Everything is a derivative, not substance meaning like a, like matter, like a physical thing, but there, there's only one um, reality in which everything is a manifestation of. And and Spinoza called that thing God, even though he was heavily criticized for using that word and to identify it um,
0: Would this be along the same lines as uh, what book was it? I think it was Rob Bell who wrote a book. uh, What we talk about when we talk about God or something like that. And I I don't think he quoted that or referenced Spinoza, but it's kind of that. I think it's the same. He, He might say it like God is the source of all things that are. So the undercurrent or the substance of everything that is you, me, this table, the rocks, nature, the river, et cetera. Is that kind of along the same lines as what you're describing?
1: Well, it would be similar to Spinoza's view of God and monism. And I think if you applied critical thinking, you could demonstrate to yourself that what you just said would have to be true um, at at some level, probably the most fundamental level, because again, we get back to, okay, if, when you go to a movie, there's a screen, right? You don't notice the screen, you watch the movie, the movie ends, the screen is still there. The, you know, hundreds and hundreds of movies playing a movie theater that come and go. Some of them are romance or children's movies, you know, some of them are violent, some of them aren't, but the screen always is there and nothing happens to the screen it doesn't matter what movie's playing on it's a lot like the screen is affected by it the screen is offering hospitality if you will to the images that are projected on it so in a similar way you know we talk about this idea the ground of being and spinoza and the source you know god is the infinite screen Hmm. like Look, people come and go, they are born, they die, the movie sometimes is this and that, but it, it all is only occurring within the hospitality, the space of God's being. There, there's no way God could be God by definition if that was not true. Now, some difficult questions well what do you mean like when you know these millions of girls that are forcing child prostitution like that's happening on the screen of god well it would have to so then you got to go to the next question which is okay well how does that work you know um that's a problem no matter how you look at it because the idea that god is good and all powerful it just it breaks down everywhere if God, God is all good and God is all powerful, that that makes no sense realistically.
0: In terms, I mean, no of, matter. Well, like like if God were all good and all powerful, He would stop the the rape well, and the prostitution. Is that kind of what you mean?
1: Yeah, like in seminary, I learned the idea that God had like an active will and a permissive will. Okay, so let me get this right. somebody, Somebody busts into my house and they start raping my daughter and I'm sitting on the couch and I don't do anything to intervene. You know, okay, I didn't actually cause it, but it's my permissive will. Would you do that? Of course you wouldn't do that. So trying to like parse this out from your seminary category Categories of God's permissive will, I don't know, if it's God's will, but it's his permissive will, hell, he's got a list of stuff that he's willing to permit that, you know, we got, you know, okay, so his permissive will included the Holocaust, it included genocide, it included one million new girls being forced into child prostitution every year. I mean, that's one hell of a permissive will for an all good God.
0: And some okay, might say but- I, I've heard it said like this before. When I've brought things like this up, someone said to me something along the lines of, "Well, God's a gentleman and He's not gonna impose Himself." But that's so interesting because you're probably a gentleman. You seem like a kind, polite man. But again, going back to the uh, the analogy of your daughter and somebody sneaking in, oh gosh, I- the rules I- of the gentleman sort of go out the window at that point. <laughs>
1: a kind gentleman and i'll go ahead and let this happen no or you know the other way that people kind of address and say well god gave people a free will so he's got to let it go but that's kind of like in a way can end up being like okay if you have a toddler and you hand them a sharp knife what do you think is going to happen they're going to cut themselves because they're just a toddler. So do you say, well, you know, look, I'm sorry, but um, you had a free will and you sliced your hand off. You know, that's um, it's all good. That's just the way it went. No, I mean, so in other words, if God creates the capacity for, for people to commit the atrocities they do in the world, and then when they do it, we somehow claim that God didn't have anything to do with it. It's like giving a toddler a knife and then claiming it's a toddler's fault if he cuts his hand open. To me, there is a much... If you're an evangelical, you're a Christian, I think that there's a view of God expressed in the Bible that, that that doesn't require these kinds of beliefs you know like i don't think it's either conservative fundamentalist christianity or bust you know it's not like either the the, the Christian theistic fundamentalist view or atheism that's it there's two choices there's there's a lot of room between those two things
2: absolutely so
1: that like even Chris Hitchens, for example, he attacked the most absurd religious notion of God. You know, like even Jesus would have attacked and did that notion of God. You know, uh, so, but that's not the only way one can conceive of God. It may not even be the most prevalent way. It may not even be, you know. um, So, so the Bible and Jesus, for example, they're so much more significant to me now than they ever were when I was a professing Christian. My, my appreciation for the Bible and Jesus, it, you know, and, and I'm often kind of stuck between, you know, um, I, I I get everybody upset, you know, because I, I get upset when I criticize Christianity. I get people upset and I get people upset when I talk about Jesus. You know, both sides. And I wrote a thing recently, fifteen universally significant and relevant aspects of who Jesus was, regardless of what you believe about God. Christianity is not the fault of Jesus. So, you you know, so I just, I would say to evangelical, you know, in general, we are all taught in almost a whole set of things in almost every aspect of life that we accept without necessarily doing the critical thinking and and investigation for ourselves, you know, uh, whether it's religion, whether it's you know, any area of life, we're indoctrinated into a set of things that we believe that become the bedrock governing assumptions and beliefs of our lives. But it's not like we sat down and looked at all the available options and chose one. I mean There's a reason why if you grew up in Nashville, you're a Christian. There's a reason why if you grew up in Tibet, you're a Buddhist. There's a reason why if you grew up in India, you're a Hindu. It's not because you chose it. It, Right. You know, it's... um, And so maybe there's a better version of Christianity than what is often espoused.
0: I don't remember how you phrased it, but you said something about, you know, professing yourself as a Christian or when you, when you call yourself a Christian. So having, having stepped outside and began learning the things you've been learning and experiencing, do you still, do you still fall under the Christian umbrella or, I mean, how do you, I hate to ask this question cause I know what I'm doing is I'm saying, Hey, what box do you fit in? And that's not my intention. Yeah.
2: But I think you understand no, I get what you I where I'm getting. Well, we're asking more for us, too, like because we, we struggle with calling ourselves Christians because of what that tells other people. Like, yeah. I, I would identify as Christian, but... Yeah,
1: I would say with reference to identifying as a Christian, first, I would say that Jesus wasn't a Christian, and I don't think Jesus would identify as one even now based on a lot of the things that we've you know been talking about. Um so I don't like labels in general so I try to be more descriptive if someone says are you a Christian well I mean okay based on what like that's almost like sure. saying do you believe god like do you know how many different ideas there are of god probably there's a right. little bit you know for every single person so there's about 8 billion different views of god so I think it's better off um to be more descriptive well let me here's Let me tell you something that I believe as it relates to Jesus, for example, rather than trying to answer a question, am I, aren't I a Christian? I I wrote a post like a few years ago that said the name of it was something like, why do I, why do I believe in Jesus, but I don't call myself a Christian. And what does that even mean exactly? We have all these tribes, but to what end? I mean, You're a Christian, which is a definition of something that you're not, which means I'm not Muslim, I'm not Jewish, I'm not this, I'm that, I'm a Christian. Um, And versus that, a person who has found Jesus to be a very meaningful way for them to access and connect with reality and, and God, you know, um, if you study Buddhism, if you study Buddha and you study Jesus and everything, you know, they're not that different. They, they kind of, in my mind, the Buddhas they were solving two different but related problems. I think Buddha was solving the issue of what causes and how to overcome suffering. And Jesus addressed fundamentally the falsehood of separation. When Jesus said, I am both God and man, that was his central message about himself because he was trying to confront the false idea of separation, which was the staple belief that it was, you know, that kept the business of religion going. And if people are watching who are Christians and so on, even evangelicals or whatever, You know, I'm not fundamentally against religion. I'm against the misuse of religion, and Jesus was at the front of the pack as a person who confronted. Jesus is a great role model on what to do with religion because Jesus was raised in the Jewish religious tradition, and he did two things. He affirmed what he saw in it that was good and he confronted what he saw in it that was detrimental and so a lot of people talk about what would Jesus do well what would Jesus do if he was you as an evangelical he would look at your evangelicalism and be willing would affirm those things that are good about it but would also be willing to confront those aspects of it that are detrimental. You know, when I, like, it's, you know, people will say, well, what's detrimental to you is not, but I'm just saying that, you know, like, um, I met with the imam of uh, of the Islamic Center in Nashville, and he's got a PhD in comparative religion, and we had a discussion about how it's, the duty of every religious leader and every minister to reinterpret their religion, you know, based on you know certain criteria, and including critical thinking, and that that, that is really the 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 job or the responsibility of the religious cleric is that they cannot just say that, that, you know, I mean, like there was a time culturally where Christians condoned like slavery. Yeah. okay So to reinterpret the tradition would be to, for example, to confront that um, misapplication of some, religious teaching that that would somehow rationalize or justify slavery, hatred, oppression, um, and you know, things like this. Yeah. Like that's the 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 mature religious leader isn't just like parroting everything that's always been said. They're they're willing to step back and apply the critical thinking it's their job to do to reinterpret the tradition as it goes
0: yeah now that's that's something that i think is i think you're spot on there you described that reinterpreting things culture changes times change and you do have to look at jesus and it's not enough to say what would jesus do and then and then kind of paint this frou-frou version of jesus that well you know whatever this thing is we have him now but to go no, Jesus, in whatever time and whatever context you threw him in, I think he would have been the same in that context. I think he would have come to our evangelical world. He might have shown up to a, a mega church with his skinny jeans on. I don't know. Yeah. But he would have, and, and I don't think he would have been a total dick about it. I think he would have, I think he would have said things, hard truths, and I think he would have loved people well. And I think that those two things would have, found their way into our culture today
1: and even and even deep theological beliefs um, like hell you have to really work at coming up with Jesus teaching the idea of hell as a literal place where people are or punished with some kind of eternal conscious torment I mean like you have to do some real theological gymnastics to somehow come out with that idea about yeah. hell Jesus. So I sometimes can't understand why Christians are so insistent on holding on to a belief in hell.
0: That's actually a topic that's kind of on our queue. We want to get around to it at some point because that's been a that's been a big one. Like I didn't even know that there were people that didn't believe in hell until, until I started listening and all of a sudden people gave a, a good summary of what they think and believe about it. And it wasn't what I grew up hearing. So yeah, I think that's a, I think it's a good topic. Um, Let's table that
2: for the next time that we have you on because I think that'd that'd be
0: interesting. Yeah, that'd be good.
1: All right. Sounds good. We'll construct heaven and hell because both of them are a problem in different ways.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Love I, that. I'm excited to hear your thoughts. Hey, Jim, thanks for hanging with us, man. It, it means yeah. a lot. Yeah. yeah we've, uh, uh, tell us I, a little bit before we go, tell us a little bit about uh, to our listeners where they can find a little bit more about you, your books, the whole thing. Where, uh, where can we?
1: My website is jimpalmerauthor.com.
0: And okay. you just... not, not the baseball player.
1: Right. Not the baseball player. You can go on Amazon and just type in Jim Palmer. You know, I'm on Facebook, I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and stuff like that. Perfect. So and my email, um uh, yeah, I got it oh, god,
0: what is my email?
1: Nobody.gmail.com and Jim Palmer at gmail.com. Either one of those.
0: Perfect. So. well this has been great, man. We'll uh we'll definitely take you up on that offer and we'll do it again. And we're just Bye. we're just thankful that you spent some time with us. So
1: Yeah. And I appreciate you two creating a space where it's okay for people to ask these questions and dialogue about this kind of stuff. I mean, we need more spaces where people feel the freedom to discuss it where they know they're not going to be, you know, kind of judged and, and, you know, Um, so I, I appreciate you two guys being willing to go there and, you know, it's unique that you've got like a, the, the combination of the audience, right? Like, like, you know, we get in these echo chambers, unfortunate that Christians and even evangelicals don't ever participate in these kinds of conversations because, you know, everybody gets upset and mad and defensive Mm -hmm. and everything, you know? So um, that's why I said, I'm not against religion. I'm against the misuse of religion. Who am I to be against religion when religion means so many different things to people all over the world? The word, Nowadays, there's the spiritual but not religious movement, but that's missing the fact that there was a time when the word religious was actually used the same way we use the word spiritual now. And so right. we, we divide things up in ways that, you know, sometimes aren't helpful. But, okay, bye. Yeah. Right, I'll go <laughs> on for <further. laughs>
0: We love it, man.
1: See you for round two.
0: Yeah, absolutely. We'll, <laughs> we'll talk to you soon, Jim. Thanks so much, man. Bye. You guys have a good one. All right. Too. Bye. <laughs> I, I, I...